Let's pray. Lord, we want desperately to love what you love and to hate what you hate, Lord. And uh, we do confess that there are many times throughout the day where our thoughts are drifting, uh, where they're focused on self or on other things that do not please you. And so we just pray that you would grow our hearts, Holy Spirit, to draw near to you, to love you, to delight in you with all of who we are, um, to love you with our soul, mind, and strength. Lord, we pray as we turn to your word now, and uh, Lord, we come to your word again and again, week in and week out, day after day, because we need to hear your voice, and we ask that you would speak to us through the scriptures, um, even as we come, give us ears to listen, give me clarity, help me to be a blessing to these people, and Lord, just pray for uh, that you would help us to not be merely hearers, but to obey. Uh, change us, O oh Lord God. We want to be changed. Change us through your Holy Spirit, through the Word. Bless this time, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Matthew 15. New chapter. Matthew 15. Um, in our reading this morning, we'll go through verses 1 all the way to verse 20. And when you find your place there in Matthew 15, 1 through 20, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. If you are able to do so, go ahead and stand. Uh, we do this because we know that when the Scripture speaks, God speaks. So, Matthew 15, verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother or his mother, what you had gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. You may be seated. Well, as we enter chapter 15, um, we've been saying that Matthew's kind of changing the camera angle, the camera focus 
onto different groups and seeing how they're responding to Jesus. So the Nazarenes essentially disregard Jesus. They think he's an upstart. We know this guy. We know what he's capable of. He's the carpenter. Uh, we see Herod say that um, this is John the Baptist raised from the dead, so he missed Jesus entirely. And then the last couple weeks with the feeding of the 5,000 and then the Jesus walking on water, uh, we've seen both the crowds and the disciples. The crowds are in the same spot. They're stuck uh, coming to Jesus for the benefits, liking to hang around, liking the healings, but not genuinely uh, submitting to Jesus, not repenting and entrusting themselves to Jesus. But the disciples, in both the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water, what we've seen is they get to see who Jesus really is, God the Son, and their faith is growing. It is growing. Uh, they're not stuck. They're growing. They're not all the way there yet, but they are indeed growing because they are disciples. They have repented. They have turned their allegiance from sin and self and have entrusted themselves to Jesus as king, and they are following him. Well, now as we begin chapter 15, the camera changes again, and it looks to the scribes and the Pharisees. And we've seen them already a few times in the book of Matthew. And what we're going to see um, in this passage this morning, as we look to the scribes and the Pharisees, we're going to see this. This is the big idea for this passage. Beware the traditions of man, which cannot cleanse the defilement of the heart. Beware the traditions of man, which cannot cleanse the defilement of the heart. And what we're going to see, where there's two sections here. Uh, one is dealing with the scribes and the Pharisees and the crowds. And then the second section is dealing with the disciples. And it's kind of a familiar pattern. So this first section, which covers verses 1 through 11... Uh, we see this, relying on the traditions of man will lead your heart far away from God. Relying on the traditions of man will lead your heart far away from God. Let's look at verse 1 in chapter 15. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Now, We've seen the scribes and Pharisees. Let's remind ourselves the scribes have a more kind of official position in teaching. Uh, they not only copy the scriptures, but they are interpreters of the scriptures, and they sort of have an official position in the religious realm. The Pharisees are more kind of grassroots. Uh, they have a lot of ascribed authority. Uh, they have the people respect them as interpreters of the law, as pious and devout people. They are popular. They're honored in this society. And what we see, they're paired together here, and they come, but notice where they come from. They come from Jerusalem. Now, where has Jesus been? Where is he now? He's in the north. He is in Galilee. He's been hanging around Galilee, bopping here, there, and everywhere, all around Galilee. Uh, we don't know exactly where he is right now. Maybe he's still in Gennesaret. That's where we left off last week. But there, uh, we get a delegation. We get a delegation of the Pharisees and the scribes from Jerusalem. Why is that? Uh, well, it seems like this is a, some sort of quasi-official investigation of Jesus and his teaching, given what they challenge him on. Um, but that is significant, that they're coming from Jerusalem, they're coming to challenge Jesus. Um, and notice what they do. They come from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Now, what, uh, notice they target the disciples, but really that's a backhanded way of targeting Jesus because Jesus is responsible for the disciples. He's their teacher. He's their master. The disciples are following him. 
So really, they're not, I mean, they're critiquing the disciples, but really they're critiquing Jesus. And what are they critiquing him about? Breaking the tradition of the elders. Now, as Jesus will, as will become clear in the next few verses, the tradition of the elders is the tradition of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus says, it's your tradition. So whether this um, tradition of the elders is people that came prior to the Pharisees, and they're kind of the guardians of this tradition, or whether it's just their own interpretation that they're guarding, um, it is, um, it, Jesus ultimately ascribes this tradition that he's talking about to the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, what is tradition? Tradition, the word literally means something handed down. And if you think about it, that makes sense. That's exactly what tradition is. It's something handed down uh, from your predecessors, from history, from experience, from whatever it may be, it's handed down. Now, what, is, what does it mean, the tradition of the elders? Well, we've talked about a little bit about this before, but some of the passages is, if, if you think about uh, the scribes and the Pharisees as interpreters of the Old Testament law, there's actually a fair amount that the law leaves untouched as far as talking about situations that arise. So what would happen is um, in some of these situations, uh, the Pharisees and scribes would take, okay, there's this scripture, there's this scripture, let's draw some implications and some application from that. And they would say, well, in this scenario, what is lawful or what is good is this. So there was some of that. There was also um, this mentality that we don't even want to get close to breaking any of God's laws, any of God's commandments. So we're going to step away. We're going we're gonna to put fences. We're going to put fences around breaking the law. So we're going to put some extra commands and some extra ideas um, around that. And that was all at least probably at this stage, and probably had been prior to what we see here, oral. So this is uh, oral interpretation, oral um, application, oral uh, fencing around the law. Um, but uh, it became authoritative. It became authoritative as we see. They view it as authoritative because they're using the language of, you're breaking this. You're breaking this authoritative interpretation. Remember, the Pharisees and scribes are held high as those who are authoritative interpreters of the law. And what does it look like to live a pious life? What does it look like to live a righteous life? Now, what specifically are they addressing? Well, they explain in verse 2, for they, that's the disciples, do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, this is not the kind of washing your hands before dinner that your mom is telling you about, right? This is, this is a little bit different what's going on. We have to piece some things together, but based on what Jesus and, uh, says um, later on in this passage, it seems like what is be, the Pharisees' logic and what they're talking about here is the issue of uncleanness. And we've talked a little bit about this in Matthew because it's a very... Uh, Jewish idea. It was, it, was, it was connected, strongly ingrained into the Jewish thought uh, and from the Old Testament scriptures. So if you rewind and go back to, let's say, uh, Leviticus, uh, and when the Old Testament law is being given, uh, you have the temple system. You have the sacrificial system. You have the tabernacle and later the temple. And if you wanted to draw near to God's presence in the most concentrated manifestation of it on earth, you would go to the temple. 
Uh, and it was very, the way it was set up in the scriptures, very geographic, very, very tangible, very physical. So you've got the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is, and then where God is manifesting his presence as his, the footstool of his throne on earth. And then you move out, you've got the holy place, and then you've got the temple precincts, the temple boundaries. Uh, and that's only where the priests could go. So what you have and what you start to see set up in Leviticus is this distinction between the holy and the common. If you joined us for our equipping hour a few, uh, a few, few months ago now on holiness, we talked about this, that there's the realm of the common and there's the realm of the holy. And within the realm of the common, you think of the common man, not a priest, uh, you've got the clean and the unclean. You've got the clean and the unclean. The closest people who could draw near to God were the priests, and even more specifically, the high priest once a year. That's the person who could get as close as they could to God's presence on earth. Uh, now, how could the common man um, get near to God? Well, in order, he would go through the temple system. He would have priests as mediators. But in order to participate in that kind of worship and sacrificial system, you had to be clean. Uh, and the uh, scriptures de delegate in terms of, say, foods and other activities. Uh, these foods make you unclean. These foods make you clean. These foods um, are going to disqualify you from getting near to God in the temple, and these foods um, are not. And so that's really the background, it seems, to what is going on here. So some foods can make you unclean. Some foods can make you clean. Some foods can draw you closer to God. Some foods can't. So let's think about this logic. Your hands and what you do with your hands throughout the day, your hands get filthy, don't they? And uh, even if the rest of you is clean, maybe your hands are unclean, maybe you've come into contact with something that you don't even realize is unclean. Well, if you, you know, eat with unwashed hands and your hands are unclean, then they can transmit that uncleanness to your food. And now your food is unclean, and now if you eat your uh, unclean food, then you're unclean. Unclean in the sense of ceremonially or ritually unclean to where you can't draw near to God. So the Pharisees are like, well, okay, let's guard against this. Let's put up a fence. And the fence in this case is uh, wash your hands before dinner, right? Um, this is a good verse for you moms if you want to, you know tell your kids that, right? But in this sense, it's, it's more about wash your hands before dinner or when you're eating so that you don't become unclean, so that you can live a, a pure life, a close life to God. Uh, you don't want to even get close to the possibility of being unclean because then you're farther away from God rather than closer to him. This seems to be the logic of this brief statement that we see here. That's what the Pharisees are concerned about. And they say, we, this is the tradition of the elders. This is the tra our tradition that we're guardians of, that you don't do this. If you want to be holy, if you want to be pure, if you want to be righteous, if you want to be devout, this is what it looks like. Why are your disciples breaking this? Okay, that's their question. How does Jesus respond? Verse 3, he answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Now, notice something. Jesus is answering them, but he's not actually answering them, is he? He's answering them, but he's not answering their question. Their question is, hey, why do your disciples do this? Why do they break the tr tradition of the elders? Now, actually, Jesus will ultimately answer that question. He will actually end up answering uh, the Pharisees' question in verse 20. But... 
uh, for right now, what is he doing? He's doing something more important. He's actually going to cut the legs out from under uh, what they're claiming is the basis of their critique. The basis of their critique is the tradition of the elders, this oral interpretation and application of the law. But notice what Jesus is saying. He, he kind of asks them the same question to them back, the same form, but notice what it highlights. It says, why do you break not the tradition, but the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. In other words, he's making a big old claim. He's saying, your basis of my, your critique is the tradition of the elders, but actually, as you hold to the tradition of the elders, that is putting you into conflict with the very commandments of God, the explicit commandments of God. And he's got to back that up now, doesn't he? But notice what he's doing. He's not, he's not answering their question. He's attacking their whole basis of critique. But let's see how Jesus backs this up. For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. So notice we're outside the realm of food and cleansing at this point, aren't we? Like Jesus is going kind of sideways with this. He's talking about a whole other arena. But what he's going to do in this whole other arena is going to show an example of how this following your tradition is actually going to put you into conflict with God's commands. So the first command that Jesus wants us to consider is honor your father and mother. That's from the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. But there's another one. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. This is Exodus 21. So we've got two commands that Jesus wants us to consider, wants the Pharisees to consider as he discusses with them. Here's two commands that God has explicitly given. But, verse 5, you say, that's the, and it's emphatic in the original, you, you scribes and Pharisees, say this. If anyone tells, so now we've got, uh, anyone tells his father or his mother. Now just pause there for a minute. So this, obviously, Jesus is connecting to that second command he referenced, right? Because the second command he referenced uh, talks about reviling or literally speaking evil, against father or mother. And so the situation that Jesus is bringing up is this situation where someone is telling, speaking to father or mother, what do they say? What you would have gained from me is given to God. Now, what is that? What does that mean? Well, here again is another aspect, a totally different issue than what we started with, but another aspect of the Pharisees and scribes tradition. So the situation is this, that someone, while still living, can, could uh, essentially vow, take a vow, that's the force of it, to take a vow that my property, my possessions, uh, they are going to be given to God, meaning dedicated to the temple and the temple service. That's the idea of what's being said here. Uh, we know that from extra-biblical um, sources. That's the situation. But evidently, someone could do this while they were still living, so they could still use their resources while they're still living, but they could also say, it seems like the situation is, upon my death, this stuff is going to God. Well, what this allowed people to do is how the rest of the situation plays out. If anyone tells his father or his mother, so someone's speaking to their father or mother this, what you would have gained from me is given to God, meaning if there were any resources I had 
that could have benefited you in your old age, taking care of you. Actually, that's been dedicated to a higher purpose that's been dedicated to the temple. And notice the conclusion of the Pharisees, verse 6, that first part of verse 6, he need not honor his father. Actually, it's way more emphatic than that, than the original. It's literally, he shall not honor his father. This is what the Pharisees are saying. They're saying, look, Someone comes up and vows their possessions um, to be used for God's service. You say that to your parents. Well, you shall not, you shall not honor them and give them a, uh, honor them in the sense of giving them a share in your possessions and taking care of them in your old age. Because you dedicated it, you vowed it to God, a higher purpose. Now, on the surface of that, that kind of has a sort of logic to it, doesn't it, right? Well, the temple is higher than anything. God's more important than anything. So, and you know, it has a sort of surface logic to it. But notice what Jesus is saying. He's saying it conflicts both of those commands, those explicit commands that God has said. First, uh, you're saying that in this situation, someone shall not honor their parents, which goes exactly against uh, the fifth commandment. And two, why someone so speaking to his mom or dad in this way uh, this is speaking evil. It's really an aspect of reviling your parents and dishonoring them. So by your tradition, this is what you guys rule in a situation like this, by your tradition, and it puts you into direct conflict with the commands of God. So he's not talking about hand washing or food washing or anything like that at this point. He's saying your whole basis of tradition and what you guys are doing puts you in situations like this that you're saying, well, this is what it looks like to live holy, righteous in this situation, actually puts you in direct conflict with God's explicit commands. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Literally, that's the idea. You've made, you've made God's law null and void by what you guys are saying. So you're elevating your tradition over against God's explicit word. That's the problem. Now, let's pause here for a minute. Is Jesus speaking against tradition, uh, period? No. In fact, we have other biblical examples, namely, say, the Apostle Paul, talking positively about tradition. So the problem here is not tradition per se. It's not tradition per se. You can have good tradition. Paul talks about that. Uh, In fact, when we take the Lord's table, he talks about what was handed down to me and I hand it over to you. It's the language of tradition. So there can be good tradition, but what Jesus is looking at and targeting here is a sort of tradition that now is a man-made tradition that is elevated over against God's explicit commands. That's what he is targeting. It's, uh, and it's not only the elevating of this tradition over against God's explicit commands, it's the reliance on this tradition, right? Because essentially what the Pharisees and scribes are saying is, if you want to be holy, if you want to be devout, if you want to be pleasing to God, this is what you do. This is what you do. And Jesus is saying, look, you're saying this is what you do, but the, the, the this is what you do, that whole basis is coming into conflict with what God says you do. So now you've elevated a man's word over above God's, and you've made void the word of God. And notice what he says. He is not happy. Um, You hypocrites. 
Remember what a hypocrite is. It's a play actor. That's what the word means. It's a play actor. Meaning what? How are the Pharisees and scribes play acting in this scenario? Well, they're saying, here's what it looks like to be holy, to be devout. Uh, This is what it means to live a good and devout life that is pleasing to God. You do this thing and you do that thing. And really what Jesus is going to say, that uh, you're play acting at that. You're saying that's good, but it's a total act because that actually puts you into conflict with God's word. And really, why are the Pharisees and scribes challenging Jesus on this anyway? It's all about authority, right? They're using this tradition to protect their own authority. That's what they're doing. And so now Jesus goes on and he quotes from Isaiah to describe what they're like. You play actors, well, did Isaiah prophesy concerning you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. And the idea of worship here is the forms of worship. Forms of worship are not wrong, but that's what's being focused on here, the forms of worship. In vain do they, you could say it like this, use the forms of worship for me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, in Isaiah's day, in Isaiah 29, 13, he's addressing his own generation. It's the same problem in Judah and Jerusalem in Isaiah's day. Um, They were doing the external forms of worship, but then they were going out and oppressing their neighbor, Uh, they didn't have hearts for God. In fact, their hearts were far away. So they're purporting to be close to God through this worship, this external form of worship. They're doing kind of checking off the boxes, even through explicit commands that God did give. They're doing those commands that God gave them formally, externally, but their heart is far away. And the idea is far away distant. It's not just like the heart's a little far away. It's a lot far away. It's way far away. You're looking like you're doing things that make you look pious, that make you look holy, that make you look righteous, but you're honoring me with your lips, and you're doing these things in vain. You're teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And Jesus is saying, well, that was what was going on in Isaiah's day. It's the same thing that's going on with you guys. Notice what Jesus is saying. He's saying their hearts, the scribes and Pharisees' hearts, are far away from God. This is what tradition wrongly done does. When you start relying on tradition, when you start elevating it over against and over above God's word, your hearts, you think you're getting closer to God, or at least you want people to think you're getting closer to God, but it's actually the heart, which is what God cares about. It's not that he doesn't care about external things. He does, but it's got to flow from the heart. The heart is far away from God. It's far, far away from God. And, you know, the Gospels are meant to show us Jesus, and when we see Jesus, we see what God thinks about things, right? He hates this kind of stuff. God hates this kind of stuff. We're, we elevate tradition over against God's Word and rely on it. It's not just elevating it, but relying on it to say, well, yeah, that draws me close to God when God desires ultimately is the heart, the heart. Notice he gets the crowds involved next. So he just, 
he just cut the legs out from under the Pharisees as far as the whole basis of their critique was their tradition. And he's saying, well, let me talk to you about your tradition and what it does. And he cuts that whole basis from out from under them, but then he involves the crowds. Look at verse 10. And he called, he summoned the people to him and said to them, so evidently, you know, you got the scribes and Pharisees, this delegation hanging around Jesus, but the crowds are kind of in the wings, right? And he calls them together and he says to them, Hear and understand. Now that language should remind you of Matthew 13. Because in Matthew 13, Jesus uses that kind of language to the crowds right before he's about to speak a parable, right? Uh, Hear and understand what I'm about to tell you. And what what he's about to tell them is another parable. Verse 11. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, But what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. In what sense is this a parable? This is kind of a pithy little kind of conundrum or paradox, right? Because Jesus is kind of phrasing what goes into you doesn't defile you, but what comes out of you. So it's a paradox in a sense. Um, Now, this language for defilement, it literally means make common or, you know, to use an older English word to profane. It's that idea, remember we talked about that spatial idea of the holy and the common? What Jesus is talking about here is saying, it's not what you eat that brings you out of the realm of the holy into the common. It's what comes out from your mouth that brings you from the realm of the holy into the common. That's what he means by defilement. And now this would have been shocking uh, to not only the scribes and Pharisees, but to the audience, because Leviticus and Deuteronomy do explicitly talk about foods that you can't put into your mouth, because if you put them into your mouth, they will defile you. So this is kind of a conundrum, uh, because Jesus is saying, well, it's not what you eat that defiles you. Wait a minute, we've got Leviticus, we've got Deuteronomy that says it does. So what's going on here? And then he adds the second part. It's what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Now, Jesus doesn't explain it, right? Because that's what he does to the crowds. He gives the parable. He doesn't explain it, but he does explain it to his disciples, which is what's going to happen next. But notice what he's doing in all of this. He's he's undercutting the Pharisees another way. He's saying, "Let let me talk to the crowds. And remember, the crowds have a great deal of respect for the scribes and the Pharisees as expert interpreters of the law. And Jesus says something shocking right? So he's, he's, um, he's made his point and position clear. Now, before we move on to talking about the disciples, let's see what lessons we can draw from this portion of things. First, beware that tradition does not put you into conflict with God's word. We are all involved in tradition at one level or another. If there's anything that we do that's been handed down to us from someone else, effectively that's tradition. We're all involved in it in one level or another. Not all tradition is bad. We can see that from the scriptures. We can see Paul saying, hey, I received this. I'm handing it over to you. And it's based in the word of God. But that's the key, is you need to make sure that the tradition that you're holding to is based in God's word, or if it's something neutral, doesn't conflict with God's word. What's going on with the scribes and the Pharisees is this is tradition that is set over against God's word and is valued more highly than God's word. And we are all 
We can all be tempted by this. So first, how do we, how do we handle this? We need to identify tradition as tradition for what it is and evaluate it by the scriptures. A lot of these things are just kind of, um, they just are, right? This is, this is just how it is. Like the, the Pharisees, right? They're saying, why are you guys breaking the tradition of the elders? Because that's just, that's just what it, the way things are. That's the way things is. So you have to do extra effort to identify, is this tradition or is this God's root and it, word? And if it is rooted in God's word, uh, you, you, you got to weigh these things. Here's some questions that might help you out a little bit. Why do I believe and practice what I do? Is it rooted in the scriptures? We should all be able to, or any belief or practice we have, we should always be able to say, now why do I do this? Why do I do this thing? Why do I believe this certain way? Can I trace it back to the scriptures? Or is this just the way things have always been? Is it based on historical practice? Is it rooted in that, or is it rooted in the scriptures? Or there can be other ways tradition shows up. Is this rooted in my feelings? Well, I just feel that it's got to be this way, so we're going to do it that way. That's tradition too. Or this is what everyone else is doing. You know, the outsiders are handing this down. I see everyone else doing that. They're handing me this tradition, so I'm going to practice that. Tradition can take a lot of different forms, and the question we always have to be able to do, all of us have to be able to do, why do I believe and practice what I do? Is it rooted in the scriptures? Can I trace it back? But oftentimes we can succumb to exactly what the scribes and Pharisees were doing here. We can insist on a belief or practice for other Christians. This is what it looks like to be pure. This is what it looks like to be holy. This is what it looks like to be drawn near to God. This is what it looks like. So why aren't you doing that? And so you can insist on a belief or practice for other Christians that puts you in conflict with the scriptures. Is there an area in your life in which you're doing that? If so, you need to give it up. You need to give it up. Because in that scenario where you're elevating your tradition over against God's word, you are in conflict with God's word, and God is not happy with that. Or we could take it even to a kind of a different level. Clearly here, the Pharisees were... Uh, were in a situation where their, their commands were in clear conflict with the scriptures, and they elevated their tradition over against the scriptures. But how about this scenario? Do you have convictions that are not in conflict with the scriptures? So it's a little bit different. Do you have convictions that are not in conflict with the scriptures, but that you impose on others when the Bible does not give you warrant to do so? This is Romans 14 kind of stuff, but we can think of the examples. We can think of the examples. You know, it looks like this. Well, uh, to be holy, to be righteous, to be close to God means you don't drink alcohol. Haven't we said that? Haven't we thought about that? Is, it, is there a command in Scripture that says don't drink alcohol? Nope. But there is commands not to be drunk, right? But what you can do is to say, well, to look holy, to look righteous, it means don't drink alcohol. And why is that person drinking alcohol? I see them take a sip of whatever. 
Well, now you're drifting into the scribes and Pharisees territory because while there's not an explicit command, and you can have a conviction about it. I'm not saying you can't have a conviction. It is totally righteous and good for certain people. Like, I have a conviction. I'm not going to do that. Or there can be situations where it's very, very unwise to do that sort of a thing. And yet what begins to happen is we take this tradition and say that's what it looks like to be holy and righteous, an external thing, and then to read that on top of others. Or we could think about something else, right? Education. I was homeschooled, uh, if you guys didn't know that already, right? So it would be very easy for me. I, I love that. I was so thankful to not be part of public education, but it would be so wrong for me to say, well, if someone puts their kid in public school, that's not the way to be righteous. That's not the way to be holy, right? It's a tradition that I'm then reading on top of someone else when Scripture doesn't give me warrant to do so. These things come in all the time. You can look through church history, uh, and you can see uh, how many times the church has put in place practices. You can think of things like indulgences. Those are easy examples to come up with, but, you know, with the Roman Catholic Church, and um, that, well, Scripture doesn't say to that, and even practicing that puts you in conflict, but we've got to be aware of this because our heart loves to depend. It loves to depend on external forms rather than, well, what does God actually say from his word? And is this thing drawing my heart closer to God? And what's even worse is when we are more committed to our traditions than we are to the scriptures, then we start reading our traditions on top of the scriptures. We start going to the scriptures to find and support what our traditions already say. And we have to be so careful about that. We have to hear, work very hard to listen and hear what is the scripture actually saying? What is it saying? Because what it says, I'm there. Whatever it says doesn't matter because it's God, the God who created me, the God who created the universe, the God who redeemed me. And if it becomes a battle between my tradition and the scriptures, my tradition's got to go because God knows the true way of things. We got to be careful when we read the scriptures to, to not try to find what we already believe there, to read our traditions on top of the scriptures. And what's dangerous about this is exactly what happened with the Pharisees, that if you rely on tradition, this is what it looks like to be holy, I'm relying on uh, all of these things to make me right before God, then your heart is actually very far away from God. And it's scary. Good tradition draws you to God and closer reliance on Him. Bad tradition makes you rely on the traditions themselves. Watch out that you're not relying on traditions themselves for your acceptance in God's eyes. And it can also do this, as it did for the scribes and the Pharisees. Your traditions, if you're relying on them, you're protecting them, you're keeping them, are your traditions a way to protect your own authority and way? We can do that. This is my view on things. I want to protect that. And so then you can become quickly in conflict with God's word. This is a heart condition we all struggle with, and we need to be aware of it. Relying on the tradition of man will lead your heart far away from God. But we need to see this next in the second portion of the text. Don't follow those who don't understand the heart as the source of defilement. Don't follow those who don't understand the heart as the source of defilement. Look at verse 12. 
Then the disciples came and said to him. So this always happens, right? Jesus talks to the, the, you know, the Pharisees and the crowds, and then later the disciples come up to them. So that's what happens. So the disciples and Jesus are alone. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? It's kind of a funny thing to say, right? But think of where the disciples are coming from. Um, so what did Jesus just do? He said, he said to the scribes and Pharisees, your tradition is in conflict with God's word. Your hearts are far away from God. And it's not what you eat that defiles you. So all three of those things are really offensive to a Pharisee and a scribe, really offensive. Jesus is happy to offend people when the time and the situations permit. Um, and, and I'll just say this, kind of as an aside, uh, that was his mercy, right? These guys are far away from God. They're crusty and, and, uh, and relying on their tradition. Well, what's the most merciful thing you can do is to shake them up, right? And to be pretty blunt and offensive uh, to wake that person up so that they have a shot at repenting, right? So just as an aside, that is part of what we see here. But where are the, where are the, the, the disciples coming from? Where are the disciples coming from? Well, remember, the Pharisees and the scribes, they are, in a sense, kind of celebrities in a way, right? They are really respected. Uh, they are looked up to as pious, as righteous ones. Uh, their interpretation of the law is looked up to. They're seen as authoritative, having prestige. And they, they have a lot of support from the people. So you can imagine, like, um, uh, you know, Jesus is saying what he just said to them and to the crowds, and the disciples are kind of like looking sideways at each other, like, uh, what's this going to do to um, Jesus' movement and reputation? Uh, and notice how Jesus answers this. Don't you know that you offended these guys? We don't want to make enemies of these guys. These are, they're, they're, they're celebrated. They're, they've got a great movement. Well, notice what Jesus says, verse 13. He answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Now, that should sound familiar because basically that's a summary version of the parable of the tares, uh, the parable of the darnel. You remember the tares that look like wheat? They're look-alike weeds. And remember, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the man went out and he sowed his wheat, and then the enemy came and sowed the look-alike weed right on top of it. And Jesus interpreted that saying, look, these are the citizens of the kingdom, the, the true wheat, and then the sons of the evil one are these look-alike weeds. Well, that's exactly what's going on with the scribes and Pharisees. They look pious. They look good. They would be, they're popular. Um, they look great, but what is Jesus saying? Look, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, they are blind guides. These guys are headed for judgment. The idea of rooted up, remember what happens in the parable, they're going to be rooted up and thrown into the fires of God's judgment. And so what, is he, what does Jesus tell his disciples? Verse 14, let them alone. Literally, leave them. Leave them. Now, these are the teachers, right? These are the teachers you look up to. But what is Jesus saying? leave them. Don't follow them. And he goes on to explain, they're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Now, who are the two blind people here? The crowds who are not repenting, they're following, you know, by and large, the Pharisees. Yeah, they're interested in Jesus, but they 
by and large follow the stipulations of the scribes and Pharisees. So they're blind, and then the Pharisees and scribes themselves are blind. They're both blind. They're not repentant. They're not coming to Jesus in repentance and faith. They're not following him. They're not disciples. So if the blind leave the blind, the both will fall into a pit. The situation is if you follow these guys, you're going to lead they're going to they're going to go to judgment and you're going to go to and the people who follow them are going to go to judgment. So that's the first thing that Jesus addresses. Hey, Jesus, you're offending these guys. Don't aren't you worried about that? No. Not worried about that because they're headed to God's judgment and they're leading people astray. So what, even from that portion, and Jesus is going to go into a separate issue here. He's going to explain the parable here in a second. But just from that portion, what can we learn? Don't worry about the opinion and offense of those who appear to be pious and enjoy popular support, but are in fact teaching, teaching contrary to God's word. We can think of that in our own society. There are many things in our culture. Let's forget even just Christianity for a second. But let's just say our broader culture, there's a lot of things that sound good on the, perp, on the surface of it. And there's a lot of groundswell and a lot of following for those things. Just believe your heart. You can be whatever you want to be. You can. All of that is the blind leading the blind to destruction. And you don't listen to those people, and you don't worry about offending them when the time comes. Now, it doesn't mean you're rude and just a jerk, but... When the time comes, and when you have the opportunity, like, I'm not worried about offending those people. I'm not worried about their opinion, because the way things are, and the way things look right now, those people are headed for God's judgment. I'm concerned about their repentance, and I'm concerned about those who are following them. We could just think in broader society, but then we could think of things that go under the name Christian. Oh, goodness. The things that go under the name of Christian... Eh, I mean, you can think of the woke stuff that has infiltrated the church and critical race theory that has infiltrated the church. It's very popular. And it has a sort of surfacey, sound good piety towards it. And we're sub we can be lured into that, but what is Jesus saying? Don't worry about the opinion and offense of those who appear to be pious and enjoy popular support, but are in fact teaching contrary to God's word that will lead people to judgment. Christianity is not being about being nice. Not fundamentally. Of course, we don't want to be rude. We want to be kind and gentle and correct our opponents with gentleness. And yet, there are some times, like what we see with Jesus here, when it becomes right to offend people because of what's at stake. And for the mercy of that person we're addressing, because the only way they're going to be brought near to God is exposing where they're at. And somehow, by God's mercy, it's only by God's mercy and grace that someone turns. But we see more in this text. Uh, that was the first issue. Don't listen to these guys. Don't worry about their opinion. Don't worry about offending them. Verse 15, Peter brings up something else. But Peter said to them, explain this parable to us. Now, which parable? He's not talking about what Jesus was just saying. It's the parable back up in verse 11. And that becomes clear from what Jesus goes on to say. So the parable is in verse 11. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. That defiles a person. Explain this parable to us. He doesn't get it. And it also on the surface seems a little like, wait a minute, there are foods in the Old Testament that say that they defile a person. So what are you talking about, Jesus? 
verse 16, and he said, are you also still without understanding? Now, that understanding language is very important because remember the parables, hear and understand. And the crowds don't get it, by and large, but the disciples are the ones who should because they're following Jesus. And he's given them a kind of enough information and enough uh, parables and interpretation of parables in the past so that he's kind of blown away that they don't get this. But he's kind and he's gracious and he explains it. Verse 17, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? Literally, it's uh, cast out into the latrine. That's what that phrase means. So Jesus is being very, not quite graphic, but he's just explaining. We all know this. You eat something, it goes in the stomach, and it gets cast out into the toilet. That's what happens. So what is he saying? He's saying based on that, you know, what, what, it doesn't really matter what food you eat. It's going to go through the same process. And you're like, well, wait a minute. What about the Old Testament law stuff? Well, what Jesus is going to say next explains that. Verse 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. Now, I'll remind you that the biblical vision of the heart is not the seat of emotions. When we think of the heart and we hear the word heart, we automatically think of the emotions. And it's not that those are absent, but the heart, you want to think of the heart as like the control center of your being, your inner control center. So you've got your logic, your uh, will, and your emotions. All three of those working together in your heart. So it's not just the emotions. Jesus is saying the inner control center of your personhood um, the things that come out of the mouth proceed from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart, let me explain that, he says. Let me explain that. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, they're all plural, actually, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. These are what defile a person. Now notice a couple things. One, murder. That's commandment six. Adultery. That's commandment seven. And you could lump that together with sexual immorality under commandment seven. Theft is commandment eight. False witness, and by extension slander here, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. That's commandment nine. So Jesus is thinking about the Ten Commandments, and it's funny, he already referenced honor your father and mother, which is commandment five, earlier on. So he's thinking of this, he's thinking of the standard of God's law, but notice what he's doing with it. He's saying, it's not just the external act, it's the thoughts. That's why he starts that list with what? Evil thoughts. In other words, Jesus isn't focusing on the external here, he's thought, it's talking about how all the external stuff starts. So he's not just talking about words that come out of the mouth. He's talking about external actions. Where does all that stem from? It stems from your thoughts. And notice he's very clear in verse 20. These, what these? Those thoughts are what defile a person. Those thoughts are what bring you out of the realm of the holy into the realm of the common. Those thoughts are what lead you far away from God and defile you and make you unclean in his sight. So now it makes more sense, Jesus' parable, right? 
Jesus isn't focusing on um, just the ritual and ceremonial aspects of clean and uncleanness. He's saying, we want to talk about clean and uncleanness. Let's go to the heart, because even those ceremonial things that were happening in the Old Testament were supposed to remind you, you're an unclean people because of what goes on in your heart, in your mind, in your thoughts. And whether you actually do the thing or not, of course, the action is going to defile you in God's eyes, but it's the thoughts, even if they never make it outside of your mind, that defile you. Now, let that sink in. Because God is omniscient, and he knows every single thought you and I have ever had of our whole lives, good, bad, ugly, he knows. And even one of those thoughts would be enough to defile you in his sight. To It's game over for everyone. Because no one, no one except one person, no one can say that they have had perfectly pure and clean thoughts in the eyes of God. He says, these are the things that defile a person, and notice how he ends. But to eat with unwashed hands, which is back all the way to the beginning in the original issue, that doesn't defile anyone. (laughs) Not in this sense, not in the ultimate sense, right? You guys are worried about this niggly, weird ceremonial stuff, and God did command some of that ceremonial stuff, but the Pharisees have gone sideways with it. But it's like, let's deal with the issues. Let's deal with the heart. It's a heart problem. It always has been. Your heart is far away from God. Why is it far away from God? Well, it's far away from God because of your evil thoughts. And we, all of us, believer, unbeliever, whoever's here, you need to recognize that your heart is the source of your defilement before God. You cannot draw near to a holy and pure God because of what comes out of your mind your affections, your reasonings, your actions, the things that no one else sees but you and God, and feel how pervasive that is. Like, you just understand that it's your thoughts that defile you, and then you think about a day or an hour and what goes through your mind. You may not have murdered a person externally, but you may have murdered them in your mind. You may not have committed adultery or sexual immorality with someone, but you may have done it in your mind, and that's defilement before God. It is game over. And you should feel, when you feel how pervasive that is, you just, you just understand, I am unclean, and then there is no one clean before God. And notice here, Jesus doesn't deal with how do you solve this. He just points out the problem. The problem is your defilement is the heart. And it, it, the question is, is there any solution? Well, yes, Matthew was written to speak to such, because chapter 1, you shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Or even a couple chapters ago, um, chapter 12, every sin and blasphemy, every sin and slander will be forgiven. And what's the understanding, right? What's been the call throughout? Be forgiven to the one who repents and entrusts themselves to Christ. Because where Matthew was going, and the table has been set, John has been executed, Jesus is on that road to Jerusalem from where the scribes and Pharisees came, and he is going to be executed. He's going to be executed 
for his people's sins, and he is going to bear the eternal weight of God's wrath on himself on the cross for those people who would entrust themselves to him because Jesus was totally pure, never had an impure thought, never had an impure action. He is totally spotless in all of who he is, of infinite value because he is God the Son. And he will atone for those who repent and entrust themselves to him. He will atone for their iniquity. And he will not only atone for it and die on the cross, he will rise again, showing that he paid for all of those sins They're paid in full so that his people can draw near to God, which is the goal of Christianity. It's not living forever. Everyone will live forever. It's not uh, being reunited with your family in heaven. that, That will be amazing. It is God himself to know and to love and to light in God, the holy God for all eternity And that's what Jesus had to do, to bring us into the real holy of holies, to cleanse us totally and purely and totally through his work on the cross, through his resurrection, through his intercession for his people. So, as an unbeliever, if you're here today, you need to understand you are defiled before a holy God and will endure his judgment unless you repent and entrust yourself to Christ. But as a believer, also, you realize your defilement today through your thoughts today, and you also equally need that same gospel message of entrusting yourself, repenting and entrusting yourself to Christ and say, yeah, I'm filthy today, but I'm not determined by that anymore because Christ has died for me, he has cleansed me, and he is creating me to be a new creature in his sight. That is the good news of the gospel. There's nothing better. You need to feel the weight of your defilement before God and the glorious truth and reality of the gospel. And when you understand that and what Christ has done for the, to, to cleanse the heart, yeah, external things do matter. God, Christ wants us to do those things, but traditions can't hold a candle to what Jesus has done. Beware the traditions of man which cannot cleanse the defilement of your heart. Only Jesus Christ can. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are awesome and amazing. And Lord, I, we, are, we are a foul people in our hearts and lives. Even, even those who have the most pious and good-looking external lives, we know in our thoughts it's, it's a mess. And yet you have saved us, you have cleansed us, we've repented and entrusted ourselves to you, sworn allegiance to you, and you are remaking us. And you save us not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin and one day the presence of sin. And we praise you for that. And we thank you for your providence this morning that we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper and thinking through these things. Lord, we pray now as we enact this tradition that we would do so with right hearts, not relying on the form itself, but trusting in what Jesus did for his people. Bless this time now as we take your table. We ask these things in Christ's name.